This is Contact Mike. Hello. 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 Nice to see you, Doe. It's April. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision and, well, well, contact. Contact. Contact Mike is a monthly podcast by Sarah Walker. A cat in a tiny sailboat. And Flo Kilpatrick. Just like making life hard for your parents. <laughs> it's produced by Kieran Ruffles. That would actually probably be the only way you could make it worse. And it's going to start. It's going to start. Now. Now. Chapter one. This month in your world, a man sung in a choir for the first time since his voice broke. And an elephant stretched up her trunk to sniff at the air outside her transport truck. Having spent the last 50 years inside an Indian circus, Rhea the Elephant was on her way to a new home, having travelled 2,400 kilometres to get there. The truck stopped, the doors opened, and she stepped out, and there was open space, and grass, and two old friends fellow former captives, the three ran their trunks over each other's bodies, as if checking they were all still in one piece. This month in your world, a woman was told, God only gives us as much as we can handle. The woman cried and cried. This month in your world, students gathered at 5am in a university in central Sudan. They were there to nominate a pro-opposition candidate in their campus elections. Then, 15 pickup trucks arrived and men armed with AK-47s opened fire on the students. The students fell down one by one, said a witness. One of the fallen, an 18-year-old, Ababakar Hassan, died from a bullet to the head. More than a hundred students have been killed at Sudanese universities since Omar al-Bashir came to power in a military coup 27 years ago. Perhaps he's scared of students. He should be. Students overthrew dictatorships in Sudan in 64 and 85. Young, educated, passionate people are powerful. And now they're angry. And sad. They're very, very sad. Across the region, they're grieving with Hassan's family. And marching. And shouting. Chapter 2 just before we properly start, Dad was talking about some illegal activities that you got up to. Oh, you to go straight to so, that. So, no. So, my question for you is, do you want to talk about that? And if so, should we make this an anonymous interview? This is Liz. Okay. So, shall we give you a name and, and leave out some illegal activities? But you've got to tell us anyway, because we want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can preface everything with maybe we did this. Yeah. <laughs> if we had happened to do this. Yes. Then, yeah. 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 Liz is my aunt. When I was a child, there were large stretches of time when she wasn't around. But she always came back, bringing with her stories of oceans, sharks, love-struck geese, dancing mandarays, and even pirates. That was just the kind of aunt she was. So how did you end up on this boat? Well, because when I was younger, I used to say yes to almost everything. Liz met Russell in a cemetery which she was house-sitting because that's the kind of aunt she was. 
She got free rent in the cemetery's cottage in exchange for some caretaking duties. Russell, the brother of a friend, came to stay for a few nights. He went home and a little while later he rang me and said, "Uh, So, do you want to go sailing? I said, yep. No, I've never, had never been sailing. (laughs) So I just said yes and it all happened. So he must have been scraping the bottom of the barrel. He thought, I need someone to sail with. Let me think. Maybe that Liz character. So Liz packed up her old car. Betty Bewilderbeast. And she drove up to Bernard Heads to meet this man and his boat. I wasn't that young. I should have known better. And the boat wasn't there. But that was my introduction to Russell and the boat was, what am I doing here? (laughs) I don't even know this guy. I've driven my wreck of a car. It's broken down. I'm broken down in Bernard Heads waiting for a boat. I don't even know if it's really going to come. But it did come after a few days. And then it was just the ocean. The ocean and Liz and Russell and Bob. Bob was the name of the boat. It was named that because we did a lot of bobbing, but also because (laughs) um, it was very overladen and also uh, a heavy heavy boat. Anyway, Bob. I love Bob because Bob, despite being quite ungraceful as a boat, it was a hard chine steel catch, it survived enormous adversity and thank god for that because i was on board it they weren't experienced sailors essentially they had a lot of book smarts and determination so we practiced up and down the east coast so we you know hit reefs and did all of that stuff got it all out of our system before we took off then they sailed and they didn't really stop sailing for years the way liz tells it the ocean seems like a totally different world There are doctors who just cruise into bays, treat sick children and just disappear again. Couples break up on ocean waters, deliberately sink the boat under their feet just to win the argument, get rescued and then jump overboard again to get away from each other. And then there is the water and the wind and seeing things that other humans rarely see. From Burnett Heads, the first anchorage was Lady Musgrave Island, which was just, I couldn't believe it. I went from... You know, my understanding of the environment from Victoria to sailing out to this coral atoll. It was just this amazing place. It's a ring of coral with a little island on it that's got uh, lots of birds and fish and all sorts of things. And there was a bit of a breeze. You could see the action of the sea. But within, within that ring of coral, it was absolutely glassy smooth. And the sunset that night was completely apricot pink, ridiculous. Like everywhere you looked was just bright colour reflecting off this... Um, mirror sea. Wow. I think there's something very special about where humans aren't. (laughs) So we just want to pause to readjust whatever image you probably have in your head right now. So picture the man and the woman in their boat on the ocean. Now, add a goose. Trust us. How long were you sailing around the world with a goose for? Well, you probably shouldn't talk about Russell like that. (laughs) I assume you're referring to his um, comrade, which was Vasco da Gama, which was the the white goose. Liz is elusive about some of the details here. When we ask how Russell came to be sailing about with a goose, she just said he was that kind of guy. It was very much a love-hate relationship. Because if you're in a storm and you're sailing around, you've got the you're at the helm and you've got this goose suddenly decides actually it's quite scary. I need to be near somebody even if I hate her guts. And he'd sneak up and get right beside you as the squall went over. So you'd be helming there with this sweet little goose sitting beside you, thinking, oh, you're not that bad. You're not that bad, Vasco. And then as soon as the squall finished, he'd go right. That's enough. And he'd just bite you. <laughs> 
Yeah, he was a bit of a prick, actually. But Vasco had his moments. There was the time the Seventh-day Adventists came calling. I think they must have been justifying why they had a very flash little runabout boat. And uh, they'd come alongside Bob when it was moored beside the Brisbane Gardens there. And I was—I saw who it was. I thought, I'm not going on you know, top sides. I'll just pretend I'm not here. And you could look out the little porthole without them seeing you. And they were hanging onto the side of the boat, knocking on the boat like they say, anybody home? And I thought, yes. And then I could hear the little of Vasco's feet going from one side of the... He must have been sleeping on the sunny side of the deck. And you could hear his feet coming around. And as he was coming around, they were getting faster and faster like this. And I just saw the portholes right here. I could see the hand and the pamphlet. I heard them say, oh, look. And you see this goose's head come in and bite the hand, take the pamphlet, eat the pamphlet in a really angry way. <laughs> no religion Don't on touch this the boat, boat and don't leave that pamphlet. Because <laughs> he loved toilet paper. So, he, you know, it was just another shift on really to start eating Seventh-day Adventist pamphlets. <laughs> but Vasco wasn't good at open waters. He'd fall off the back of the boat and just swim in circles until they turned around and came back for him. So they left the goose on a farm and headed out into the ocean. Just the two of them and Bob. Nature is different without us in it. We're so used to seeing animals fleeing before us, but Liz saw parts of the world where animals had never learnt to fear. I've never been close to a turtle. I don't mean emotionally, physically. Um, Diving down to see a turtle you know you've seen it surface you think I'll go down and have a look so you dive in and here it is going about its business finding things to eat and this one just looked at me you could see it go god you're ugly and then go back to what it was doing oh crap a human I'd jump overboard with my spear gun and I'd just be surrounded by all these fish going hi what are we doing today (laughs) and I couldn't even push them far enough away to spear them so it's like that's not sporting guys but back to the sailing we had a really bad sail across from the Chagos Islands we got caught in very big storms the biggest seas I'd ever seen and I think I actually had scurvy I don't know, I've never looked up the symptoms, but I, something happened. I was not well. It was because we hadn't eaten for days because of the difficulties. The boat had been knocked down. There were things, it had obviously been knocked down, you know, horizontal a couple of times. And the waves were enormous. And we finally got in behind Madagascar and came into the first bay that was safe. And suddenly you've gone out of these terrible conditions and we're exhausted beyond words probably, but just functioning okay. So we came into that bay. Again, it was like Lady Musgrove Island, completely glassy smooth. And it was absolutely full of manta rays. And they were just doing whatever manta rays do. Just amazing, clear water watching these manta rays and they were thick. There would have been hundreds of them. Uh, I don't think that's a very common thing to see. While in Madagascar, they were able to trade with the local villagers. We bought some eggs off them and they came over in a tatty old plastic bag, you know, plastic bags that have been out in the sun and start to break down. And so they handed over the eggs and they speak a kind of a French dialect. And we had a, we had a smattering of things that just get us into trouble, really. But we would try, like, so what do you want? What do you actually want? What do they want, Russell? I don't know. They wanted their bag back. Yeah. They wanted their precious plastic bag back. So once I realised that, I said, plastic bags whoa we've got plastic bags i gave them another plastic bag and they were just so excited to get a plastic bag (laughs) what was it like to be just with one person as your human companion for that whole time i think it speeds up a relationship 
so he's a very intense fellow interesting guy like very good company but very intense and it'd be like having a 45 year relationship to be with with somebody on a boat for five years and if you got pissed off like I did I'd go up the top of the mast you'd be out at the middle of the sea and I'd go up the time never coming down ever again because <laughs> there was nowhere else to go so if you had any issues you had to sort it out because it, you couldn't run away it's not like the glossy brochures though it's actually really hard work would you mind telling us how you made money during this trip <laughs> supposedly perhaps how you might have made money. Yeah, we might have made money, had the opportunity presented. Uh, well, we smuggled a man who the authorities were after in one particular country. They were in Borneo, moored in a bay when some locals rode over and asked a favour. Could they get a man out of the country? Fast. He was so not uh, streetwise. He just had no idea. He's like, you kind of felt sorry for him. He had a bag full of cash and he just wanted to get out of Borneo and get to the Philippines. He didn't care where. Why he wanted to get out was unclear. Perhaps something about claiming his children's school fees when they weren't going to a private school, something like that. So he's negotiating down inside the boat with Russell and I'm standing behind him so he can't see me and Russell can. I've got my arms folded and I'm frowning and I'm going, don't you dare, you know, just miming it, don't you dare. And then the guy says, I'll give you 11,000 American dollars. And I'm going, yeah, <laughs> all right. <laughs> now you're talking. He did. He gave us $11,000 cash just to get him out overnight to another country. We were quite well armed when we left Australia um, because we'd been told of all these pirates. I told you that story, didn't I? We were, so we had a Ruger, a very accurate, very good gun apparently with telescopic sights and accurate over several hundred meters and we're heading out into the pacific and we've got the philippines somewhere on the left but we can't see it there's no land in sight and then on the horizon you see this quite large open boat very very fast and when it turned to face us it was a very narrow hull with two outriggers and it would have been 60 foot long it was very big and you could see the rooster tails coming off it as it charged towards us and russell said this is it so we got the Ruger out. He got throwing knives because that's what he was going to do. I'm going to shoot the hull and try to sink them and he'll start stabbing them when they get on. This is normal life on the boat. Um, so they get closer and closer and they're going flat chat. And as they got closer, you can see they're all blokes. Like it's just bristling with blokes with black balaclavas. And I'm down in the cockpit shaking like a little puppy with this thing I've never fired. <laughs> and they just do this big broadside. And the boat comes to a, like a, a sweeping halt and they just hold up fish. Hey, Joe, you buy fish? You think, oh, I nearly blew you out of the water. <laughs> I couldn't talk. I just couldn't say a word. Russell had to say something and, and politely say, no, thank you, we don't need any fish. I was just, yeah, speechless. Why were they wearing balaclavas to So they don't get fish? burned. It's, so, it's ah. to keep their, yeah. Well, they don't expect to see boats out in the water. They just thought, oh, yeah, we'll get a lot more money for our fish from a yacht yeah. uh, but we weren't to know that and we were just we were ready for pirates we'd been told so many stories you want to buy fish oh my god <laughs> yeah anyway so that that diffused a whole lot of things in us I guess because you're out there there's nothing to see but water on all sides you for days on end and then the one dot on the horizon suddenly becomes your greatest fear mm. and you go through the whole routine of I'm going to have to kill people <laughs> 
to survive, which is a little bit out of your normal depth. And uh, and then they, they just want to sell you fish. It's probably quite a good reflection on life, really. <laughs> like, don't overreact. Things are different on the ocean, many things. But some things are just like they are on land. Relationships are still hard, and relationships still end, and these endings are still really shitty. I ran away in Kenya, and it all just got a bit silly. I think because we'd reached our use-by date, we'd been together in a confined space for way too long. It all just got really silly, to the point where he dropped me off on a dirt road a long way from anywhere and pretty much said, that's it, you can walk from here. I thought, that's not such a good idea. <laughs> but I was so cross that uh, I didn't go back to the boat. And that was it. I went back to the boat twice with the help of the local workers telling me when Russell had gone to Mombasa for the day to get some cash to get me home, but also collect my things and to leave a note. And I left the shortest of notes because I thought, we've discussed absolutely everything. There's no more discussion to be had. So it was just like, goodbye and thanks for all the fish or something. You know, it, the, the note was only one sentence because there's no more to be said. And so, after years at sea, that's how it ended. In Kenya, with both feet on the land and a boat she didn't watch sail away. How do you think it changed you? When I came back, because I'd been confronted with so many situations and some of them life-threatening, that my threshold for being concerned for my situation would be so high that nothing would faze me anymore. And I said, but you just adjust. So now something will come up at work where I'll feel anxious and the pressure will be on for me to get that right. I suppose that's, that's good that you keep adjusting that threshold of what's going to cause me anxiety. Otherwise... You just become numb to everything. You put things into compartments and you can look back. I think it was uh, Lunig said, adventure is discomfort remembered from an armchair. <laughs> and so all, it all becomes quite romantic. But at the time, you know, it was quite difficult sailing. There was no toilet. There were no kitchen facilities. Everything you did, you had to start from A to get to Z. There was no quick way of doing anything. I mean, you realise at the time that it's... Um, extraordinary to be living in a place like Chagos and you never get a chance to go to a place like that other than by sharing a boat with a crazy person who's prepared to do it there's no safety net you're out there and now I have a a a very safe life everything is routine and it's it's like it's a different person now yeah I think we did go crazy right at the end I thought I can't make sense of this anymore I think I'll just get out it's interesting when you make a decision like that but if you suddenly say no like change direction in your life it's like doors opened and doors did open friends and strangers stepped up to get this woman home from Kenya all the way to her mother's house I got all the way to the Geelong station and they said oh it's Sunday there are no buses and I said I have come all the way (laughs) from Matwapa in Kenya and you're telling me I can't get a bus from here to Whittington and the station master said I'm knocking off in five minutes, I'll give you a lift. How's that? Liz slotted back into life surprisingly easily. She has never had a boring job and that helps, but these days she is safe. She has a safe life and a safe job. We're very lucky to live in a country like this where you can do that kind of thing, be completely irresponsible for the first four decades of your life. Uh, Not that I would suggest you do that, but, you know, I've got away with it. (laughs) should have realised this a very long time ago that I'm actually a risk taker 
You know, there are people who are risk takers and there are not. And I never considered myself to be one. And somebody said something only, oh, I don't know, in the last six months. Said, you've done a lot of dangerous things. Like, I suppose you're right. And, yeah, they are right. But I wouldn't profile myself as a risk taker. I just said yes a lot. <laughs> Chapter 3 I've told the pirate story to heaps of people and um, everyone's always like, oh, that's so, so terrifying. And I told my friend JT about it and he was like, definitely would have shot everyone. I would have shot everyone. I would have shot the first guy, realised they weren't bad guys, shot everybody, sunk the boat, dropped the gun off the side of the boat and then just sailed away because there's no law on the ocean. And I was like, what the fuck, Josh? And he was like, yeah, nah, I just everyone would have died. And then if anyone on my boat had issues, I would have killed them too. And I was like, you're a very placid person. He was like, not on the ocean. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a good, that story is a good kind of like imaginary test of who you are as a person. Like, what would you do? I'd just cry. Yeah. I There'd be a lot of tears in urine. Uh, and then maybe die before they arrived, just of sheer panic. <laughs> but I also feel like that about the possibility that a spider might walk across my windscreen when I'm driving at some point. Like, I think that would be my response to that moment as well. <laughs> so maybe my, like, fear reactions are a bit heightened. <laughs> yeah, there may be a slight disparity there between level of threat and yeah. level of reaction. Um, yeah, I would think i just would have bought the fish i just like like yes i like fish and wow wasn't that funny that we just nearly like killed each other just now but yeah let's let's go back to a simple trade um have have some stuff for a fish would you like a gun i would have bought all of their fish yeah. being like assuaging yeah, I my white guilt and i know i'm a vegetarian but like <laughs> bring it yeah it's really tricky to respond to liz's story i think mm. in a way because it's so much bigger and stranger than anything else it feels like after that yeah like what do we say be like oh that was that time i went camping yeah. Or like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah that was that time i um i got in a car and like unexpectedly drove to a different suburb yeah <laughs> <laughs> sarah you said you're scared of the ocean why do you think that is the ocean just wants you dead like let's be serious about this the ocean gives <laughs> the ocean is not interested in you at all and you are so tiny in that space. The tides want you dead. The waves want you dead. Everything in the ocean wants you dead. Everything below about 50 feet in the ocean is horrifying and light up and has big teeth and wants you dead. My idea of what hell is, is deep sea fish. That's that's absolutely what hell is. I read recently that um, the oceans on, I think, Jupiter are like 11 times deeper than the very deepest part of our ocean. That's disgusting. Oh, oh no, no, that's not okay. The part of me that really um, empathises with Liz is kind of like, there's an opportunity, I'm definitely going to take the opportunity approach. Like, I totally get that. But the second that someone said, come on a boat with me, I'd be like, that sounds so bad. No, thank you. Let, let me tell you a story that may... You know, just serve as a counterpoint that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So my dad had a couple of boats, a few boats, as as I was a kid, because um, you know he just had a little bit more money than he knew what to do with. And <laughs> boats are a really great way of taking care of that problem comprehensively. <laughs> so you know, like he would spend weekends like painting something or scrubbing a deck or something. There may have been one or two sort of uh, booze-affected navigation moments where, you know, markers coming in and out of Moreton Bay may have been clipped. Anyway, 
we were moored uh, off Peel Island, which is a small island in Morden Bay. And this storm came in, but it was unlike any storm that I'd ever seen before. So there was cloud cover as far as the eye could see. And there was lightning, but none of the lightning was coming from the clouds to the surface of the water. The lightning was just going between clouds, like sheet lightning, lighting up this massive cloud cover with all these insane purples and oranges and pinks. And it never rained. And it lasted for hours. And we lay on the top roof of the boat and just watched this insane light show unfold and not stop and wait to get rained on and not get rained on and it was one of the most gorgeous things ever i nearly died in the ocean but the ocean brought me back when we were little kids and there was my sister and my best friend poppy and we're all playing and poppy's aunt had poppy's toddler sister on the beach with her and this wave came and swept poppy and i out and hannah jumped in and managed to grab poppy as she was swept past and this poor aunt was just standing there with this toddler on the beach, unable to do anything. And a wave threw me back into the rocks and onto the sand. And I just grabbed these rocks and just held on. The back toe of the wave was just incredible. Just my whole, just, it really felt like all these hands just like, come back to us. <laughs> and yeah, my hands and knees were so beaten up, but it did kick me out. It spat me back out. We're not allowed to talk about that day in my family. That one's too traumatic for my mother. Um, This moment when the three of us all very nearly vanished at once. I think about that a lot when I see very big waves and when I see waves that smash against rocks in particular because that was the kind of beach it was. I don't know. I'm very aware that for all the times that I nearly drowned in the ocean by waves, which was only once, there has been like... 40 times when I've been walking along the beach on a totally still day and have gone, I reckon today's a good day for there to be dolphins. Looked out to the side and, oh, there's a dolphin. That's Adelaide for you. But, yeah, like, how many more incredibly beautiful, precious moments have I had on the beach than traumatising ones? Like, the ocean brings a lot of of beauty and joy into one's life. This is a quote from... A Norwegian, I think, writer called Isaac Dinesen, which is, the cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. Pretty good. Pretty yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Sounds That's like awesome. they had a lot of all those things for <laughs> out. Yeah. Contact Mike is a monthly podcast about people by Flo Kilpatrick and Sarah Walker, produced by Kieran Ruffles. You can find us at contactmikepodcast.com. We would love it if you followed us on social media and reviewed us on iTunes. This has been Contact Mike. This episode episode ends ends now. I'm moving to the deep vacuum of space where there's nothing that can just loom out of the darkness and try to eat me.